going to the mountains makes me think of summertime. It makes me think of road trips, uh, family vacations, um, because that's what my family did when I was growing up was go to the mountains or go down to Memphis, Tennessee to visit my mom's family. And so we would be in the car forever. And I remember as a kid, there was one thing that just I cared so much about when it came to these road trips, and that was when we stop in town X, Y, or Z, are we going to stay at a hotel that has a pool? We didn't have any indoor swimming pools in Neosho, Missouri, but at the Holodome in Memphis, Tennessee, we had an indoor... Oh, it was amazing. Couldn't wait to get out of the car. Didn't even want to go up to the room. Just wanted to throw on those swimsuits right away and just get in there, especially after riding in the car for eight hours. One of, one of the other things, one of the other curiosities, one of the magic things for me as a child about a hotel, I mean, there was the ice machine, which was pretty cool and all this stuff. One of the things was all of the doors, you know, when you were in your hotel room, all of the doors had this, this small peephole built in, right? And I like, I always, you know, after I got my stuff set down, I always I like to look through the people. I don't know why, but there was something about the peephole. Now, I don't know when the last time you've looked through a people was, but there is something weird about I don't know why they do this when they design peepholes. Like, I think they're trying to make it helpful, like, like to expand your vision out or something, but it distorts everything, right? And so when you look through the peephole in your, in your hotel, uh, you know, your, your, the door of your room, it could be your wife returning with a bucket of ice, but she looks like a serial killer, right? <laughs> I mean, because there's something that's all blown out of proportion. It's like, or the guy's bringing room service, and it's like, I know this guy's up to no good. There's something about how it distorts the view. It's small. It's distorted. And then I guess kind of the opposite of a peephole would be like a picture window. Thinking of the, of, of the Rocky Mountains, you know, uh, someone's home that has a giant picture window where you can just take in all of creation. It's large. It, 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 it draws you out. You just want to, you want to admire it and then you want to get out in it. A peephole is more about security, is more about feeling safe, is more about getting that deadbolt. And so as we finished last week, we, in it, we began, we finished out chapter 5 of Romans. We started off chapter 6 where Paul talks about baptism. Baptism as this moment where we accept the work that Jesus did for us as we join our story with his story of redemption. It is a big view. When Paul talks about baptism, it is always a big view. It is a call into a new life. But you can view baptism through a peephole. You can have a smallish view of it that reduces it to sort of a, a transaction between you and God where you get forgiveness of sins. And certainly forgiveness of sins is part of, of being in the gospel story, no question about it. But it is so bigger. The window for Paul is so bigger. The view is so much more inspiring than a simple transaction. And so he talks about baptism in the beginning of chapter 6, and then he calls us into this big new life in Jesus Christ. So Romans chapter 6, Paul speaks about sanctification. 
right? Chapter 5 was mostly about justification, how God makes you and I sinners right in His holy presence. Chapter 6 talks about the new life that we are drawn into. Between those two, sandwiched between justification and sanctification, we have baptism where we join our story to His story. So moving in to this calling to go deeper and deeper into the gospel. And now that we have seen the people and seen the, the, the picture window, let's talk a little bit, before we get back into the gospel and what a gospel life looks like, let's talk a little bit about, about kind of the people view. Let's talk about some incomplete gospels, some small gospels, some partial gospels. Of a book I've been reading... Um, by David Platt, I know some of you had, have called Radical. He rethinks, goes back to the Bible and rethinks what the Christian life is about, what church is about. And, and I was really drawn in by, by one of the things he wrote. I'll just read you a quote here from Radical by David Platt. He says, If you were to ask the average Christian sitting in a worship service on Sunday morning to summarize the message of Christianity, you would most likely hear something along the lines of, the message of Christianity is that God loves me. As wonderful as this sentiment sounds, is it biblical? Because if God loves me is the message of Christianity, then who is the object of Christianity? God loves me. Me. Christianity's object is me. Therefore, and then he starts spelling out what this looks like. Therefore, when I look for a church, I look for music that best fits me, programs that best cater to me and my family. When I make plans for my life and career, it's about what works best for me and my family. When I consider the house I'll live in, the car I will drive, the clothes I will wear, the way I will live, I choose according to what is best for me. And he says, this is the version of Christianity that largely prevails in our culture, but it is not biblical Christianity. We talked the first week in this Divine Dictionary series, we talked about the love of God. We talked about how love more than anything else is at the core of who God is but jumping from the love of God to making God loves me the centerpiece of what God is doing in creation is quite a leap. God is love. God loves me, yes. But the center is always God, right? And when I get that down, my life becomes focused on His mission, on His plans, instead of on my personal agenda. Back to baptism for a second. We'll write this down. Um, this is the, kind of the first in, incomplete gospel here, is that a gospel, it, one of these versions is a gospel that's more about me, right, than about God. So yeah, let's talk about baptism with that for just a second. Back to baptism. Um, the people view here, the small view, um, is that baptism is about me. It's something that I did. It was a work that I performed. It was uh, my special day or whatever, right? And that's one way of looking at baptism. Or the other way of looking at baptism is baptism is about the work Jesus did for me. 
It is about his story and me finally deciding to, to merge my story with his story, to join my story with his story. Two views that can make all of the difference in the world. An, un, an incomplete gospel can actually make baptism about me. It can make prayers mostly about me. It can make the songs, the worship, the adoration that I, that, that, that I do mostly about me, my preferences, my musical stylistic preferences, new songs versus old songs, all of that stuff. It can become very much about me um, and more about me than, than my heart actually having an encounter with, with the living God. You with me on this? So a gospel that is more about me than it is about God is, is a weak gospel and an incomplete gospel. But then there's another partial gospel, right? This one goes like this. Um, that the delights of Christ are for everybody, but the demands of Christ are for a few, right? Follow me on this for a second. Grace, forgiveness, heaven, praying when I've got a need, God helping me out, all of that stuff is for me and is for everyone. Devotion. Well, that's, that's for the super spiritual. Um, evangelism. You know, we, we pay people to do that. We have staff that does that, right? Um, regular quiet time with God, uh, seeking God in the Scripture, being a part of a ministry, showing up even on a Sunday morning and showing up thinking that, that I'm here to serve. Well, that, that's for a few, right? That's for a few. That's not for everybody. And so there's this incomplete gospel that, that, that a lot of folks buy into that says, the benefits of Jesus, everybody. The blessings, everybody. The demands, the call, the cross to carry. May I select few? Select few. And that's a, that's a partial gospel. That's not the real thing. And then there's this one that hits a lot of Christianity right between the eyes. Here's this one. A gospel that accepts information as a substitute for transformation. You know, I may not do as much, I may not be as active, I may not be as generous, but hey, I am reading a lot of Scripture. I am listening to a lot of sermons. I even download podcasts and listen to those from, from other preachers in other places. I mean, I even go to an occasional ministry you know, event or revival or something like that. And so there's this, 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 this knack that we have sometimes of thinking, well, if I just do more informational stuff, if I just fill my head with more Bible facts, with more knowledge, then I am more spiritual, right? But that is a dangerous thing. We're going to encounter this in, in, in Romans chapter 6. That baptism isn't an end point where you just kind of show up and learn stuff from that, that point. Baptism is the beginning point of a new life. And it is to be a constantly transforming life by the power of the Holy Spirit. A life of love. 
God loves me, and God has sent me out to share his love with the world. Information cannot be a substitute for transformation. And I don't think this thought is just 21st century America, right? I mean, Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and I think it was an issue there. He He tells them, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. So even then there was this, how can, I, how can I know stuff about Jesus? How can I learn some, some scriptures or some spiritual techniques and kind of improve my life? And Paul says, you know, knowledge is, is a good thing, but knowledge can puff up. It can be artificial, whereas transformational love, that's what we are being called into. Another gospel is a gospel that doesn't call me into a broken world. Any gospel that doesn't call me into a broken world, any gospel that, it, that is not a picture window where I see the world through God's eyes and I've got to get out there and join Him, any gospel that lets me be content just doing my own thing, that is not the gospel. That is not the whole gospel. You know, Jesus was abundantly clear about this in his ministry over and over. His strongest teaching, perhaps, was in Matthew chapter 25, when he says, look, anytime you go to visit somebody in prison, anytime you give a cup of water to somebody who's thirsty or clothes to someone who needs clothing, anytime you give food to someone who's hungry, you're doing that for me. And they're like, well, when, huh? how does that work? And he's like, no. When you offer service to somebody who's broken, who's out there, who has a need, when you visit somebody in prison, when you take care of a physical need, you are ministering to me. And so he keeps calling us to consider the least of these people who struggle. And so smaller, incomplete gospels tend to emphasize my salvation, not my transformation, all right? My salvation, not my transformation. The gospel of Christ is bigger than that. The gospel of Christ is much bigger than getting your ticket punched to heaven. It really is. Now, here's a way of thinking about life in the gospel that kind of helps me frame, just in a, in a, in a short way, kind of frame what it is. Two things. This is on your outline this morning. Um, Life in the gospel, two things. It's about delighting in his grace, demonstrating his glory. Delighting in his grace, demonstrating his glory. All right? Delighting in His grace, it's not like a one-time event. I mean, we need grace every day. Grace is part of that fuel that powers us forward in our Christian life to do what? to magnify Jesus, to demonstrate His glory in a broken world. Paul is talking about Jesus in Romans chapter 6. He says in verse 13, um, I mean, he's talked about Jesus already, how Jesus gave up His life. Jesus was all about the glory of God. He says in verse 16, you guys in Rome, use your whole body as an instrument to do what's right for the glory of God, for the glory of God. Not enough just to shower good things and and money or food or whatever out into the community to those who have need. Not enough. 
You have to be so intentional that God gets the glory for it. That's why the church is so important. We don't need to be ashamed of the church. We don't need to go out and do good things and be ashamed to tell them where they're from. We need to say, yes, I'm from the Preston Christ Church of Christ. I'm a believer in Jesus. That's why I do what I do. It's for His glory. Does that make sense? Because you can do good out in the world for sort of sentimental reasons or, boy, it just bothers me to see that I'm going I'm to throw that guy some money or something. But we are intentional that we do it for the glory of God. Otherwise, people will think we're really great. Wow, you're just awesome. No, I'm not. God is awesome. And so I enjoy His grace, and I extend His glory. So here we go. Let's talk about this Romans 6, God-powered transformation. When God gets behind transformation, first thing I need to remember is this about God-powered transformation. I understand that transformation involves God's power and my participation. There are two things there. It involves God power transformation, involves God's power, and it involves my participation. Paul puts it like this in verse 4 of chapter 6, for we died. Okay, that's not something we preach very often anymore, but this idea that there's stuff in my life that's got to die, that's got to go in the grave so that a new glorious life can be raised up. He says, we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And yet, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. So it's the glorious power of the Father that is at work in our lives. It is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead that is now at work in you. Now what this doesn't mean, what this doesn't mean, and you know this, but it's good to say it every once in a while, but what this doesn't mean is that once you've accepted Jesus, once you've come to faith in Christ, your problems are over. <laughs> I mean, you're not going to have a care in the world anymore. Everything's going to go great. It doesn't mean that this transformation is now automatic. Bam! I, I, I put my faith in Jesus. I, I joined my story with the gospel story when I was baptized into Christ. Now I'm on autopilot and God is doing everything. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't happen like that. It's kind of messy. It's not always linear growth, but transformation happens and it happens by His power. And you'll see this throughout the book of Romans. That doesn't mean that that old man of sin that was drowned in the baptistry, it doesn't mean that that old man of sin isn't still fighting. <laughs> is still at work trying to gain control. But God's power at work in me is what makes transformation happen. And it doesn't mean that I don't do anything. It doesn't mean that I'm entirely passive. It doesn't mean I'm passive at all. Um, and I like what John Ortberg uses on this to make this point. He talks about the difference between a motorboat and a sailboat. And I've piloted both kinds of, of, of boats before. Maybe you have too. But, but there's a big difference between a motor. In a motorboat, I'm in control, right? I put my key in the ignition. I start the engine. Um, I steer the boat. I decide where I want to go with the boat. I decide how fast I want to go. That is how a motorboat works, right? A sailboat is different. 
And it's not like you don't do anything in a sailboat, but a sailboat is entirely dependent on the wind. I mean, if there's no wind, you are not going anywhere, right? And you can't necessarily in a sailboat decide, I'm here, I need to go there and go straight there, right? You've got to head in a general direction that the wind is pulling you in and, and, and put your sails up. I mean, and there's a lot of work. It's not like you just sit there in a sailboat, right? I mean, there's an incredible amount of work. I mean, hoisting the sails and rigging the sails and making sure that you're constantly getting the most of the wind that you possibly can. And when the wind blows, things really get exciting in a sailboat. They do. And did you know that the same Greek word, the same word used throughout the New Testament for the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, it is the exact same word for wind. The pneuma. The pneuma. The Spirit of God. It's, it's, it's the wind of God. The holy wind of God. And so we raise our sails and we invite God to to fill us up and to lead us and to change us and to move us by His power. Now, another thing that we learned about how God's transformational power shapes us, the second thing here is this. We choose to live for His glory. You know, I live for His glory. I don't live for my comfort anymore. Um, the peephole in a hotel room, it's all about security, you know, Right there by that peephole, you got the deadbolt and you got that weird little chain thing that probably wouldn't keep out the neighbor's dog, you know. But you've got the, it's about security, it's about safety, it's about protecting myself. Like I said, the picture window is totally different. It's about, look out there. Isn't that amazing? Enjoy the view and then get out there. Get out there in it. Um, and so the gospel is not about my comfort. It's about me joining God in a dark world. He is lighting up the world in every dark place, and he wants you and I to join him. Paul wrote about Jesus in Romans chapter 6, verse 10. He writes that Jesus lives for the glory of God. He lives for the glory of God. And I was so inspired. I'm still inspired when I flip back through the dreams from Dream Power. And we're working right now to harness these and, and to get these out into places where, where we can put some pra practical plans in place with these dreams now. But I was inspired because by and large, I mean, the overwhelming feel of, of these 3,020 dreams was externally focused. It was, let's be the church. Let's join God in His work. It was, it was not about our comfort, and so that inspired me very much because for so long in, in America, there has been a, a kind of come-and-get-it mentality in Christianity. I mean, this was kind of the bread and butter, the DNA of the mega church movement, which is let's have uh, the coolest, you know, the coolest music and let's have the coolest programs and the coolest auditorium and all this stuff, and, and, it's, and, and people will just come. It'll just attract them in right? Come and get it. The problem is, it may have worked for a while in the 1980s. Now, most people are saying, who, who are not already believers, who don't have a relationship with Jesus, those people are saying, no thanks. I see what you're offering, but no thanks. But when God's people 
who have enjoyed His grace and enjoy His grace, when they extend His glory, we become salt and light. We are sent out into the world in every direction into creation to share the redemptive love of God for His glory. God-powered transformation occurs supernaturally when I get past my own comfort, when I get past my preferences, when I get into His mission, and then move out into His neighborhoods and His city for His glory. The next thing I want you to note is this. It is about this decision that I will relentlessly commit myself 100% to God's plan for my life. You may think, duh, I mean, come on. I'm a Christian, I follow God, but I think this is all over Romans chapter 6, and it's something we have to constantly remind ourselves of, because we hold back. You know, Paul writes to to the Romans in verses 17 and 18 here, thank God, you, you Romans, you, you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey. You're all in. You wholeheartedly obey the teaching we've given you. Now you are free from your journey to sin, and you have become slaves to righteous living, wholehearted, being 100% on board with what God is about. I read a Christian blogger recently who was talking about how one of the great problems in the Christian life is the problem of the boardroom of the heart. And this blogger wrote, you know, it's like we have, each of us, inside our heart, we have these little boardrooms, and sitting around the table there, making decisions, you have the social me, the religious me, the leisure me, the, the, the family me, the sexual me, you've, the intellectual me, the career me. These me's are sitting around a boardroom, and they are making my decisions for me. Now, they argue amongst themselves. They don't always get their way. They're fighting, they're arguing, they're discussing, and I'm pulled in so many ways, and I have a divided heart. And this blogger said, for a lot of folks, coming to Christ means offering him a chair at the table. Jesus, I now believe in you. Come and join my board. See, the problem with that, when Jesus is asked to join the board of my heart, well... Jesus is going to win some and he's going to lose some, just like all the other me's. That's why this word Lord in the New Testament is is so important. Lordship, firing the board of my heart and saying, my heart's yours, Jesus. I'm uniting all that I am in you. And when you do this, a lot of times people think that, uh, you know, following Jesus, loss of freedom, um, it's going to be this oppressive lifestyle. That's not the life that's painted for us in Romans chapter 6. It is a life when I clear up all of this divided heart, when I clear that out and I put Jesus as the CEO of my life, as my Lord, there is freedom and there is focus in my life like I've never had before. And in so many lives... The transformation, that's why I put this down. It seems so obvious. We're 100% committed to Jesus. Yeah. But in so many lives, the reason the transformation is not happening, the reason it's two steps forward, two steps back, the reason it's running in circles, the reason, the reason transformation over, uh, over the years is not happening is that the Christian has not fired the committee of their heart.
And so a decision is required. I mean, today and tomorrow and the next day to follow Jesus, to make him Lord over all that I am, not just give him a seat at the table. A seat at the table is an ineffective and incomplete gospel that doesn't bring God the glory. Next thing on your outline as we kind of move toward the conclusion here. Part of the, the, what releases God's transforming power in my life is I live free from performance-based spirituality. From performance-based spirituality. Sadly, many people believe that once they are saved by God's grace, woo, yes, now it's up to them. God's grace got me into the kingdom. Amen. Hallelujah. Now my good behavior will keep me there. Now it's my performance. And that is so off. And if you read the New Testament, read the letters of Paul, he is constantly battling with that idea. Foolish Galatians. Saved by God's grace. Now you're trying to do it all on your own. Joy and freedom are found in remembering my relationship with God is based on the performance of Jesus, not on my performance. The same loving hand of God that pulled me from destruction in the first place is still at work in my life. God relates to me. God relates to you, believer. He relates to us based on what Jesus accomplished on the cross, not on what we accomplish. If it's based on what we accomplish in any way, we are toast. Amen? It's got to be all Jesus, or Christianity just isn't the religion for you. Try something else where you have something to add. The message of the cross is that it was Him, and it is Him. His performance, His righteousness is what makes us right with God. Paul writes in verse 14, he says, Sin is no longer your master. You no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. And so we started this series talking about God's agape love, the most powerful force in the universe. And when we come to understand that, when we open our hearts to God's agape love, it changes us. It's the beginning of this journey to being like Jesus. Today, we've come full, full circle. I mean, week one, week two, week, as we've gone through this Divine Dictionary series, it's been all about God. It's been all about His work. Romans chapter 6, Paul says, but... You can't be passive. You have to raise your sails. You have to allow God's Spirit, God's wind to move you and to shape you and to make the change happen. And then you begin to love people like God does. And His love, when it's fully experienced, never leaves you the same person. And His love, when fully experienced, doesn't leave you peeking through a hole, scared about the world going to hell in a handbasket. Oh my! Let's form a Christian enclave. Let's, let's, let's hide out. 
When you experience God's love and you understand the power that is God's love, you are going to look upon the majesty of what He's doing and you're going to be called out into that. Nothing can stop God's love. The war is over. The victory is won. And now we join God in this victory and we share this victory with a broken world. 